wanted to kill the Okay, everybody. You guys want to, oh, everyone's in their seat, but work your way to your seats. We will get started. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Good is good. All right, so if you open your Bibles at chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, we're going to begin that chapter this morning. And as you guys are turning there, this next chapter is going to finish a section of thought that began back in chapter what? Eight, right? Back in chapter eight. And in chapter eight, we began a section about the proper use of liberty. We know that we have a lot of freedom in Christ, but what we do with this freedom is really what matters. In particular, with this church, it was eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And if you remember, the strong Christians recognized that they were free to eat the meat because idols are nothing. And there is only one true God. And as much as that is true, the weaker Christians did not quite understand this yet, and their consciences, consciences were weak in regards to it. And the problem was that the stronger Christians were not walking in love. And God has called all of His people to walk in love. They did not have any concern for their weaker brother, but only cared about their own selves and their freedoms, and their liberties, right? And after saying that the stronger Christians were correct in their knowledge of the truth, Paul then rebukes them in chapter 8 for their lack of love for the weaker brothers. And though the context here is more him defending the weaker brother, we also need to realize that there's other scripture that the weaker brothers can be wrong in their attitude as well. But in the context here, the focus was on the stronger brothers. I'm just going to read real quick 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. These verses will be on those sheets that you have. The, the last three verses there, I mean verses 11 to 13 rather, it says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose, Christ's sake, for whose sake Christ died. That's a serious verse, right? And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Ultimately, all sin is against who? God. What did, you, what did, what did David say? Lord, against you and only you I have sinned. Right? And it's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or whoever else he sinned against. All sin is ultimately against God. We were reminded of that actually this week on the men's retreat. Verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. I mean, if, I had to, if it had to go down to that, that should be the response for all of us because love of the brethren trumps everything else. Then in chapter 9, Paul gives an illustration of what he has been saying using himself and Barnabas as the object lessons, right? And chapter 9 acts as a positive illustration, meaning they can look at the actions of Paul and Barnabas and learn the things that are to be imitated, which pleases God. After all, we exist and all that we do should be so that we would please the very God who made us and saved us. In other words, they would see how Paul's actions reflected exactly what he is speaking of, what he said. He's not being a hypocrite, right? And now in chapter 10, we're going to see another illustration, but it's a little bit different here in chapter 10. But this time, it's not a positive illustration, but rather chapter 10 
is going to be an example of a negative illustration. In other words, the illustration that Paul gave concerning himself and Barnabas were examples of what to imitate. And in chapter 10, he's going to give an example of what not to imitate. Amen? So for this, he's going to go back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And then, well, if anyone here is coming to church on Sunday nights, as we've been in this journey in the Pentateuch, we'll realize that they didn't respond in a righteous way to this. Most of the time they responded quite negatively with their wicked ways. So kind of like the stronger Christians' response to their weaker brethren, right? They were doing kind of the same thing. As everything in the Old Testament and for us, and it's the whole Bible, we're reminded of Romans chapter 15, 4, which I often say, again, I think it's just a good verse to read before we start this morning. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Okay? Everything was written down for our learning. Right? So that we would learn and be better in this life. Right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 we are going to do verses 1 to 13 this morning. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. Alright, so let's read the scripture. The Lord's word says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We need it this morning, Lord. We need it in our lives. We need it for our sanctification. We need it, Lord God, so that we can be reminded of our own nature, reminded of our neediness and our reliability on you and on your power to live this Christian life. And to be good stewards, Lord God, of what you have given us. And good ministers to each other. And ultimately, Lord God, we need it so that we can honor the two great commandments, which is to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love 
our neighbor as ourself. So Father, we pray that you would help us this morning. We trust that you will, and we thank you in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, I want us to see three things that Israel had in common with the Corinthian church, and hopefully, by God's grace, we will learn from it in our own context presently, and I trust, of course, that we will learn, because we have his grace and we stand in it. So number one, I want to see that we're going to see a similar deliverance, verses one to five. Number two, I want us to see a similar response. In other words, a similar response that the nation of Israel gave and a similar response that this church was given and the church in general, because this word is for us, certainly. And a similar remedy, verses 12 and 13. So let's first look at a similar deliverance. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Mr. Caleb, would you like to read that for us? For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the, in, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that was accompanying them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All right. Alright, so what we first see here in the opening five verses is the commonality of the church's deliverance and Israel's deliverance. And though Israel's deliverance was not salvific in the eternal sense, it was in fact salvific in the temporal sense, right? Now we must remember that Paul is writing to the whole Corinthian church, but in a broader context, in a greater context, He is writing to who? Us, right? All of us. So we need to pay very careful attention to this. So first, I want to call our attention to the conjunction for in the beginning of verse 1. This is actually very important because it connects this section to what was just said in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. So remembering what Pastor John said last week, is going to be very helpful in our understanding as we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 10. So last week, we learned that in order for us to win, right, we need a race, John said, or any other kind of competition as goes with the analogy that was spoken of in chapter 9. You need a race. So first thing is that you need a race. Secondly, he said, he reminded us that you also need a prize. Right? That is something to strive for or look forward to, the reward at the end. And then thirdly, John said, you also need to be focused. Right? If we're going to do anything, a task that's extremely important, whatever the case may be, but especially fitting the analogy of a race, we must be focused on what we are doing in order for us to do it correctly. Right? And in particular, this focus is on God and pleasing Him But what it's also going to mean is that we need to be focused on your, not another's, gifts and abilities and using them in accordance to the way that God has granted you to use them. Alright? So we need to focus on ourselves and our gifts, not on other gifts, not on others' gifts. 
Fourthly, you need self-discipline. Obviously, with all this, we must discipline ourselves. Paul said, I discipline my body, right? And then fifthly, you must play by the rules. If you don't play by the rules, you're disqualified from being able to win the prize or get the reward. Again, is this talking about salvation? No, right? It's not talking about salvation. He's talking to a church, a real church. This is talking about rewards. So if we are set on doing things, if we are so set on doing things that God has not called us to do, or equipped us to do, then guess what? We're going to lose the reward. Because we're doing something that really is outside of God's will, and it doesn't make a difference if your intentions are good. Right? We must obey and do the things that God has called us to do. So keeping all this in mind, let's go back to our text. So in the same way, Israel was in a race. Every Israelite was delivered and experienced the same powerful hands of the Lord. There is not one Israelite that did not experience the same exact powerful hand of the Lord as another Israelite. They all were delivered the same way. And from that point forward, they were to live a life in obedience to this great and amazing God who has already demonstrated himself wonderfully against Pharaoh, their captor. And that they were to go and now live a life of obedience to this great and wonderful God who was delivering them. They both were freed, right? The Corinthian church, the whole church, and had great freedom, right? Every believer is in the race of the Christian life and are to pursue sanctification. We know that sanctification is growing more and more holy in heart and in conduct. In other words, growing more and more conformed to the image of who? That is our calling, right? The Israelites were also immersed in the leadership of Moses, who was a type of who? Christ, right? Who was God's appointed leader and the agent, in a sense, of their deliverance. It was God, but he was going to use Moses, right? So, as all the nation was identified with Moses... So all the church is identified with her Lord and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. They ate and they drank of the same spiritual food as well. Remember that even though many were not true believers out of the nation of Israel, in fact, there's probably only just a small remnant, right? They all benefited from food and water that was supernaturally provided by God, right? Christ was present with Israel the whole journey. But with most of them, God was not well pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. How many people of that first generation got into the land? Huh? How many got into the land? The first generation. Huh? Two people, right? Joshua and Caleb. That's how even Moses himself and Aaron didn't get in. So God delivered them for something greater, but all they did was what? Kind of like something we're familiar with, and we have a tendency to do the same thing. All they did was complain and grumble and sin. So in their freedom, in fact, they had great freedom, 
they sinned. In the same way, the stronger Christians were delivered. They got salvation. Their eyes were opened. They have eternal life at their disposal. At their... That's the wrong word. I can't think. At the... They have eternal life. Okay? They had freedom. And with this freedom, they were sinning against their weaker brothers. Not good. So something has gone very, very wrong. So what do we learn from this great deliverance? Well, I believe we learn two things. I'm sure there's a lot more, but two things that I see. And that is, the greatness of the deliverer and the smallness of the delivered. So let's first look at the greatness of the deliverer. Who delivered both the Israelites and who delivered believers? God, right? So keep in mind the God who brings salvation both temporally as they did there and eternally as he has done here with the church. Some verses here. Psalm 86 verse 8 to 10. Sean. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any words like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wonderful deeds, you alone are God. Amen. So we see here God is set apart. There is no one like God. He alone is God. He alone does these great works. He alone has everything going according to his will and will get glory and is getting glory. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Daniel 4, 35. Michael. Amen. What does it say? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, who is absolutely the powerful dominant one that's going to have his way? But God and God alone. Psalm 66.3, say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. And I really like this a lot. A lot. Yesterday at the men's retreat, the speaker told us how he tries to break up his day in 15-minute intervals. Now, it might seem like it's a really hard thing to do. But in other words, this guy, you can tell he's a pretty disciplined guy, I think. And I'm sure he's not perfect at this. But that's what he tries to do. And the reason is really the principle behind praying without ceasing. He's like, it's not about these long formal prayers. It doesn't mean that. We have jobs. We have lives. We have to live. We can't be doing that, right? But the idea is the little prayers. The little one, two, three, four word prayers. It's acknowledging his greatness and just thanking him. As you stop and meditate on everything that's going on, don't miss him in the details, right? And I like that because our God is our deliverer. And he indeed is great in every way. 
So we see the greatness of the deliverer, and we also see the smallness of the delivered. We constantly see their weaknesses and sinfulness. And we see this with the church as well, right? We see how weak we are in Scripture, how weak mankind is. This was true of the Israelites, and it's true of us today. We are not strong in and of ourselves. We are strong only in Christ. Amen? It shouldn't be all that is on display for the believer, but we are reminded so often of how small we really are and how needy we will always be in Christ. And that's okay. Because if we are needy and we rely on Him for all things, then who alone is going to get the glory? But God. Amen? So Psalm 144, verses uh, 3 and 4. Joey. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like passing shadows. Amen. Isaiah 40, 15. Adam. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lives with the islands of fire dust. Oh man, I mean these words are, are powerful. All we have to do is look at the past, whether small or great, all nations will eventually collapse and have a collapse. Look at, look at Nebuchadnezzar, look at Sennacherib, look at uh, Haman. No power has lasted forever except the only true power who directs everything according to his perfect will. In John 15.5, and I really love this, John 15.5 is a word to who? It's a word to us. Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. In John 15.5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So here he goes. He's talking to those who are redeemed. Right? And we are redeemed. But we need to realize God has called. We have a race to run. We can't do the race on our own. We can do nothing of our own. If you want to do anything and have victory in regards to the rewards aspect, this life of sanctification, then we must abide in the vine. That's where we get our strength from. And he's speaking to us as the church. Alright? So I see a similar <clears throat> a similar deliverance. Number two, let's move on to a similar response. Similar response, verses 6 to 11. It says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
So in the greatness of this deliverance, there should have been a great response, right? But we see the contrary in the nation of Israel. So let's first look at this. They were first, they were guilty of idolatry when they made the golden calf, which led to all kinds of sinful acts when they were dancing and partying around this horrendous image. And it led to about 3,000 people being killed. And then secondly, it says they acted immorally, coming from Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2. It says, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, breaking God's commandments. Right? For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and this led to 23,000 Israelites being killed. Third, they tried the Lord by complaining against His provision, and they were killed by serpents. And brothers and sisters, just think for a moment of how often we do this, complaining and grumbling. Even if you're one that's not noted as maybe a complainer or grumbling, we all do it. We're all guilty of doing it. We may not do this always consciously, or maybe we do it subconsciously, but nonetheless, we do it, right? How often do we complain about the weather, about the food we have to eat? I'm guilty of that. You know, one of the things growing up, and I think we have a lot of... You grow up in a family that had a home-cooked meal all the time, you're spoiled with food. And there's people starving in this world that would just love to have a speck of what we have. And yet we complain. You know, we laugh at it, but it's not funny. You know, I'm disgusted with myself. And it's okay, it's not to say we can't enjoy good food. I enjoy good food. I'm not going to say I'm sorry for that. But how often do we complain? The clothes we wear, the rules over our head, a whole plethora of other things. The list can just go on and on and on about things that we complain over, right? Every time we complain, we're complaining against the very God who has given us the provision that we have. We're complaining against God. Fourth, they grumbled against God's anointed leadership. We certainly see this with the Corinthian church. So here's a dire warning against complaining against God's anointed leadership. And this is even applicable in a secular sense, right? All worldly leaders are appointed by God. Good or bad. And this offense was so serious in the nation of Israel... That again, it led to 14,700 people being killed. In the beginning and end of this particular section in 1 Corinthians, I could have put 6 with 5, I could have done that. It says that these things were written down as examples, very similar to the Romans verse, right? Examples for us that we would not sin, right? That we would not sin. And this in particular was given as an illustration for the Corinthians because in their deliverance by the gospel, as it is for the church, they should have responded with love and with gratitude and with kindness and gentleness and everything else that comes with the Spirit. But instead they responded in selfishness, arrogance, and greed, works of the flesh. Not good, right? Not good. 
So how are we responding, church? Just something that we have to constantly ask ourselves, right? This is a race, so we have to ask ourselves, how am I doing? Well, not too good. I can do better. If you see God's hand at work, let's just say, we should be doing good. If we're seeing good things, praise God. Who gets the glory for that? And continue to press on and continue to grow and continue to be doing better. And then number three, you see a similar remedy. Similar remedy. Verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So what I see here is that this remedy first requires us to have the right perspective concerning ourselves. We know that the scriptures are very clear that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That we should esteem others as more important than ourselves. We've already had quite a few lessons in this book on the danger of being overconfident, right? Overconfidence is often the result of pride, if not always the result of pride, right? Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride is, in fact, the chief of sins and the root, really, of all sins. And we must be careful not to have it and be diligent to rebuke it in ourselves whenever we see it. We have to constantly be self-reflecting, self-reflecting. Especially when we have the tendency, it's easy for us to reflect on others, right? Well, stop for a moment. Start pointing the finger back at yourself. Reflect on yourself, right? So the saints at Corinth, who are strong in knowledge, were also guilty of being overconfident, thinking that being around this old life would not affect their own lives, which are supposed to be holy, and care for others. Supposed to look much different. Therefore, just like the Israelites who were all delivered in the same way and were foolish in their response to it, they needed to pay careful attention. That's what it means to be the heed in verse 12 to what happened in the past and learn from it. Romans 5. Look at Romans 5. Verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't end there. Through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So we see here that Romans 5.2 reminds us that we stand in grace. And this is a perfect indicative and it implies that we are immovable in Him. And this is possible only because of God's power through His grace. We stand in grace. Verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So it is grace that saves us, 
and sustains us. And just because we are saved doesn't mean we can't fall into great sins. If we have a struggle, I ought to do all I can do to remove myself from something that would tempt me and distract me. I can't do anything in my strength. But we are required always to rely on His strength to do anything. And He will only strengthen us to do His will. So we can't think that, oh, I'm good, I got this all the time. Right? Overconfidence, no, 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 no. I don't have anything. Now I get it, at one sense I can say I got this. But in another sense I can't say I got this. I have to always remind myself that, no, I have to rely on His power and His strength for everything. And this is so important. You know, again, the, uh, in, in, the, in the, the retreat, the one guy, was given, he was an alcoholic. He was addicted to alcohol and porn, this pastor, oh, right? Changed man. And he was talking about how, I think uh, one of his friends from AA would always leave a six-pack in his refrigerator. He said, why are you leaving a six-pack in the refrigerator? Oh, so I can, he mentioned something, so I can see that I have the power against it or something like that. He said, oh, well, how, well do, you, do, do you fall into it? Yeah, sometimes. Well, stupid, why do you have it there? You know, I mean, and especially if it's a non-believer, you don't have any power. Yeah. Right? It's, 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 it's wow. not how we're to be. So this remedy first requires us to have the right perspective concerning ourselves. And then secondly, it requires us to believe in God's word and obey it. This is extremely important. Verse 13 is one of the most comforting verses for the believer. Everyone knows this verse, believers. A lot of us know this verse. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I can go back to my own past. Mike as a younger Christian who knew this verse would even preach this verse would say he agrees with this verse and yet demonstrate that this verse has no power and get frustrated by this verse. So this is one of those most comforting verses for the believer but can also be one of the most frustrating verses for the believer and not because the word has failed but because we fail to truly believe it. Mm. Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. Anthony, read verses 1 and 2 please. So how do we know we have God's approval? We believe His promises that we are saved by grace. I'm saved by grace. He approves of me as far as my standing before Him. Well, what else? Is He approved of me when I sin? My actions? Absolutely not. Right? His word is what dictates all of this. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith, Enoch, 
was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And what was this witness? If you go back to the very short passage that we read in Genesis, I don't have them on those sheets, it says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Right? And walking, we know in Scripture, is synonymous with what? Lifestyle. Obeying. Lifestyle. Obeying your master. And you will not obey, and we will not obey, if we do not believe. John Damon, Hebrews 11.6. What does it say? And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question again, church. Do we believe him? The only reason of our existence. Man, I can't tell you how much. I know I sound like a broken record. I know I say this all the time. The only reason for our existence, that we are here, that we are alive and well, and have breath in our lungs, is that we would please Him. He's not done with us? Yes. I'm here so that I would please Him. Do we believe him, church? Because if we don't believe what he says in his word, we cannot please him unless we believe. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Peter said, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew nothing was more precious and more valuable and honorable than to stay with him and to serve him. He believed him. Not perfect. He didn't have perfect faith. None of us do. He believed him. And he knew that's where he needed to be. We need to understand that the examples of Israel's situations in the past and the present situations that the Corinthians found themselves in, which included how the strong Christian handled their freedoms, that these were all temptations that had a way of escape. And this way of escape was provided by God Himself. But now listen to me carefully, because this is important. God provides the way of escape. Amen? He just told us. But what does He not do? He does not force us to take that way. And I've said this many times, and I'll say it again, that doing the will of God oftentimes means missing out on something that you really want to do. And it often means doing what your natural self has no desire to do. But we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Number one, Do we believe that he has provided the way of escape as he has said in his word? When that temptation is there and it's strong and the desire to sin is so incredibly strong, do we believe that he has provided the way of escape? That we have access immediately. We know that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. 
And number two, do we believe that we are gained that what we are gaining in the way of escape, which is by the loving hand of God, and is righteous and in good in and of itself, is so much greater than what we are missing out on the sinful temptation that only lasts for a season, that may bring harm both to you and to another, and that it displeases the God who saved you. We have to ask ourselves that question. That's going to help us. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. And it says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In church, we must never stop believing in the power of our God to live as He has called us to live. He is in fact the same God who created everything, who sent His Son to die in our stead, the same God who delivered us is the same very God, the same Spirit who is hovering over the face of the waters resides in us right here. It's given us the ability to understand every single dot, jot, and tittle of this word. He has given us the ability to do that. And the ability to live out this life for His glory. We must never stop believing in the power of our God to live as He's called us to live. This is the goodness of our God. We can never stop believing in the kindness of our God. In the righteousness of our God. So the things we have in common that we see here again, a similar deliverance, a similar response, and a similar remedy. Remember that this Israel illustration was what kind of illustration? A negative one or a positive one? A negative one. God gave us a negative illustration so we know what not to do He's given us a positive illustration in Paul and Barnabas and what they did and what to do as they were imitating Jesus Christ. I'm going to read Romans 15.4 again. And Romans 15.4 is very similar to verses, uh, verses 6 and verse 11 in our text. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Our 
instruction. So that through perseverance, that implies already a battle, right? And the encouragement of the Scriptures, you've got to ask yourself first, do you actually get encouragement from the Scriptures? Because if we don't get encouragement from the Scriptures, something's really wrong. This is God's Word. And it's powerful, and it's good, and it's righteous, and it's to us. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have confident expectation. We might have hope. And to amen a verse like Romans 15.4, to amen a verse like Romans 15.4, and do nothing, is to treat it like dirt, rather than the holy, infathomable, inerrant, and loving, and life-giving word that it truly is. And church, remember that Paul's illustration in chapter 9 was an illustration for us to imitate because it is what Christ would do. And we want to do what Christ would do and be who He wants us to be for His sake. And if we do this for His sake, we will do it for our brethren's sake as well. Because the second greatest commandment is like the first. Amen? So let's strive to honor Him together as a church, as individuals, wherever we are, but as a church here in the body of Christ at Bible Baptist Church, and as a church here, one local church in the great universal church that is all over the world. Let's strive to do our part as individuals and as a church. Amen? Let's get ready to worship again as we get into the sanctuary. Father, I thank you that you love us so much. You've given us so much in your word. I thank you that you are patient. When I read this word, Lord God, it could seem like I'm, I'm being so firm and strong here, but Lord, I'm saying this to myself, not to my brothers and sisters here. We all need this. I'm convicted by your word. Help us, Lord God, to really come alongside each other, Lord God. Not just say empty words like I'm convicted, but not do anything about it. Father, I pray that you would just help us, help me to be a better vessel for your glory. And Father, as we head into the sanctuary to worship you, I'm reminded again that that is not the sanctuary. But we have a heavenly sanctuary one day waiting for us. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be when we can worship you in that wonderful place perfectly. And until then, Lord God, help us to be steadfast and immovable. Help us to persevere. And as we persevere, we're reminded that you alone preserve us. So I thank you and I praise you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.